Welcome back to another podcast from the School of Surgery. Today we're going to be discussing consent. My name is Ricky Ellis, I'm an academic foundation trainee at the Royal Derby Hospital. Today I'm joined by Daniel Couch, research fellow in general surgery, also at the Royal Derby Hospital. In this podcast, we'll aim to define informed consent and to describe how to obtain this for procedures. This podcast is aimed at medical students studying the consenting process, foundation doctors as they begin to have to consent individuals for procedures as part of their responsibilities, and speciality trainees as a reminder for interview preparation. As clinicians, we undergo the process of obtaining informed consent on a daily basis, whether this is for permission to examine a patient, perform an investigation, or to proceed with a medical or surgical intervention. Obtaining a patient's consent honours the principle of patient autonomy, the patient's right to decide on their treatment. It's also a legal requirement. Without it, physical contact with patients may be deemed as battery. As well as this, consent is essential in building a trusting relationship with your patient. It's a matter of common courtesy. All clinicians need to have a good understanding of law and the ethical principles of consent, and the need to recognise when to ask for advice or consult the expertise of others. So Dan, would it be possible to inform, define informed consent for us, please? Yeah, sure. Well, there, are, there are really two forms of, uh, of consent. The first is implied consent, and that's the sort of consent that you see every day. Or, for example, if you go to take a patient, uh, go to take a blood, t- a blood test from a patient, and they put out their arm, they don't have to say anything. That's just Im- you, They're implying that they give consent to the blood test because it's straightforward. You know they understand what it is. Um, however... For certain procedures and certain acts, we need to get express consent, where we explicitly declare um, a statement of intent to do a procedure, and the patient in return explicitly declares a statement of consent. And this can either be written down on a consent form or in the notes, or it can be simply given verbally. For example, uh, PR examination normally requires express consent, whereas uh, an appendicectomy or an amputation of your leg would also require written, written express consent. Okay, thank you. And what would make this informed consent valid? Well, there are certain components that you require for a, for valid informed consent. And by informed consent, we mean a patient it's a patient's decision to undergo an action, have been provided with all the information required in order for them to make a balanced decision about the action. But for in, or, in order for a patient to give that informed consent, they have to have capacity. They have to. We have to disclose all the information to the patient and the patient has to volunteer their consent. So just breaking that down, in terms of capacity, the patient has to be able to have to have the ability to give consent. For example, the patient is able to understand the information provided, retain the information, weigh up the information in making a decision and communicate that decision back to you in a way that you can understand. In terms of us disclosing information, we have to provide the sufficient information with regards to all the benefits and all the risks of, of the management option and all the other management options that are potentially available to that patient. And that allows then the patient who has capacity to make their informed decision. And lastly, in volunteeriness, the patient must be able to make the decision without coercion or persuasion, and it must truly be balanced in the eyes of them. So it must truly be their decision, and you're not trying to sway them either way. Brilliant, thank you. Let's discuss the process of consenting. For some decisions, it's important to note that no formal paperwork is required, as we discussed earlier with the express consent. But it's advisable to evidence a discussion that you've had with the patients and the patient's decision in a written format in the patient's notes. 
Remember that consent forms are only evidence of the conversation that took place and the decision that was made by the patient. They're not proof that the consent is valid in itself. As a result, it's important to note that pre-printed consent forms often don't allow room for proper documentation of the conversation you've had with the patient. Therefore, it's advisable to document this fully in the notes as well as on the consent form. And should legal proceedings take place, the consent form shows evidence of a patient's informed consent. However, it does not outline the discussion and the information you provided them with in order for them to come to their informed decision. There's four types of consent forms we use in surgery. Form 1 is for adults or competent children. Form 2 is for parental consent for a child or young person. Form 3 is for cases where it's envisaged that the patient will remain alert throughout the procedure and that no anaesthetist will be required in their care. Consent form 4 is for adults who lack capacity. In some trusts, you'll also find some pre-printed procedure-specific consent forms, such as OGD consent forms, for example, which have often got the procedure-specific risks already written down for you to discuss with the patient. So Dan, how do you go about obtaining informed consent for a procedure? Well, Ricky, it's all about, the first of all, it's about setting the scene. You need to choose the right environment in order to gain consent. So, for example, if, you, if a patient had, um, let's say, gallstones stuck in the common bile duct and they needed an ERCP in order to get those stones out, then you wouldn't want to consent them straight before the procedure or while they were rolling around in pain. The best place to consent that patient, ideally, is well in advance, so typically in clinic, not in the anaesthetic room or as you're holding the scope in, in one hand. You've got to make sure that the where you're taking consent is nice and quiet, it's uninterrupted, you can't be you can't be rushed and you have to be able to take your time. So you've got to turn your phone on silent, give your bleep to someone else. So you've got a good five, ten minutes to talk about to this, this patient exactly what they want. You've got to make sure that um, the patient has with them anyone whom they require in order to make their to give their consent. So, for example, it's quite common for um, people to want their, either their spouse or their parents or their children to be around to help them weigh up the decision, and that's entirely appropriate. Let's take your time to make sure the patient understands the condition. So, you need to talk them through what they've got and why they've got it, and what the consequences are of treating them and not treating them, and outline the prognosis. And as I said before, you need to discuss all the possible management options. So, for example, if someone has a leg which has gone gangrenous and there's nothing you can do about it, you need to discuss with them that you know it would, might be possible to try an angioplasty on the leg, but that probably is not going to work, and if they don't have their leg off, they're going to die. And You need to be as frank as that. And so discuss all the potential prognoses of all the potential treatments. In detail, you need to discuss with them what's going to happen to them after the procedure. So post-op, including the recovery, what's going to be the lim limitation of function afterwards and how long is that going to last for? And what's the realistic um, gain in function they're going to get over time? And then, if appropriate, if there are a few, a few options which are available, you need to discuss the, the prognosis and the gain, the gain in function and the recovery for all these different options. Um, you must take time to discuss all the complications and all the adverse outcomes. So let's say someone comes in with an, for an appendicectomy because they have appendicitis, a risk of the operation is death, even though it's very, very small. And the chance of dying from an appendicectomy is next to nothing. It is potentially possible. And if it's a significant risk, you must discuss it. So you must discuss everything. 
You must discuss it in a language that they are able to understand, and you must be prepared to explain it in multiple ways, for example, uh, just via verbal uh, communication, maybe drawing it, drawing diagrams for the patient, giving them leaflets, or showing them a model so they can understand it fully. And be aware you're going to have to tailor your, your explanations to different people based on their um, social cultural backgrounds. Lastly, it's vital that you doc document these discussions in the notes because um, if it's not written down in the notes, it didn't happen. So if the patient turns around and says to you, after the operation, you didn't take my consent, you, if you can produce a document saying that you did and you wrote it all down fully, um, then you're in the clear. Interestingly, recently there was the Montgomery versus the Lanarkshire case. Now, after this legal case, and I won't go into the fine details, the law now requires that a patient should be told of all the material risks from any procedure or treatment. A risk is material if that patient would attach significance to it. So something which you may not consider to be significant as a risk, if the patient would consider that risk to be significant, you must discuss it. Um, so, for example, if you're consenting a patient, you must consider their individual circumstances and explore with them what risks are, are significant to them personally. It will not be enough on its own for you to rely on patient information leaflets or pre-printed consent forms, and this all must be documented. Interesting, thank you. And of course it's vital to formally assess a patient's capacity to make this decision. But for more information on the Assessment Capacity, the Mental Capacity Act, and what to do if a patient lacks capacity to make a decision, please listen to the capacity podcast that can be found on the School of Surgery. So Dan, what happens if a patient refuses an intervention or withdraws their consent that they've previously given? Well, this is quite typically an interesting clinical scenario. If the process of seeking consent is a meaningful one, then refusal must be one of the patient's potential options. If an adult with capacity makes a voluntary and appropriately informed decision to refuse treatment, this treatment must be, respect, must be respected, except in circumstances as defined by the Mental Health Act. This is the case even where this may result in the death of the person or the death of an unborn child, should that be the case. If, after discussion of possible treatment options, or a, pa a patient refuses all treatment, this fact should obviously be clearly documented in the notes. And if the patient has already signed a consent form but then changes their mind, and where possible, you, and where possible, the patient should note this on the form. Where a patient has refused a particular intervention, you must ensure that you continue to provide any other appropriate care to which they have consented. So, if they don't want an operation, it doesn't mean they can't have antibiotics. You should treat them as possible, but without the treatment to which they have, which they have refused consent for. And lastly, you should also ensure that the patient realises that they are free to change their mind, and if they and they can accept treatment later on if they do so. If the delay may affect their treatment choices, they should be advised of this accordingly during the consent process. Okay, thanks, Dan. And before we go, have you got any helpful tips for us on obtaining informed consent? Well, Ricky, when I'm consenting patients, I, I rarely go straight in and consent them all in one go, and five minutes in and out, and consent's done. It's often easier to give the patient some information first, talk them through all the treatment options, and then come back later on, um, maybe five minutes later, or a few hours later, or even a couple of days or weeks later, if it's a big decision. This allows them time to weigh up all the information given, and often they will come up with questions which are relevant for them. It just makes the consent process easier and helps build trust between you and the patient. Um, this also gives you an opportunity to assess from a clinician's point of view if the patient has a good understanding of the information that you've given to them. So if they come up with some very strange questions, you probably haven't discussed it or explained it properly. 
Remember, when you're taking consent, you must state the side of the operation. So, for example, a right inguinal hernia repair, even if the hernia is massive and it's really obvious, you have to state in the consent which side it's on. Um, otherwise, the patient doesn't get a procedure when they come to have their anaesthetic. Every time you open the body surgically, there are certain risks such as bleeding, infection, scarring, nerve damage, etc. And every time you leave a foreign body in situ, there are risks of infection, such as uh, or graft failure. And it's good to have a list of complications and risks that you can use for consenting in every operation. But take time to think about the risks that are specific to that operation itself. So you need to consider procedure-specific risks, for example, conversion of a laparoscopic procedure to an open one, and also person-specific risks. For example, if you've got a high-risk patient, the risk of MI um, in a patient with ischemic heart disease becomes much higher. And you would mention that, but you wouldn't potentially mention that in a child, for example, having a, a small operation. Finally, as I said before, always mention the rare but serious complications such as stomal formation or death or amputation. If you're consenting someone or you're about to consent someone and you're not sure what to do or what to say or what the risks are, ask, ask a senior and it's always worth asking them what they think they would consent the patient for. If you're only just starting to take, to take consent, then it might be useful for you to watch a senior consent a few people beforehand. It's then entirely appropriate to practice your consent with that senior alone. Um, buy them a coffee and sit them down so you can run through the script a few times, if you like, before you then consent for these, consent a patient for the operation. If you do that, make sure you discuss their, your performance with them afterwards and they'll give you some hints and tips on what you, anything you should do differently or things you did or didn't mention that were appropriate or inappropriate. Always try to have a discussion with the patient and answer any questions that they have. I then leave the patient with some written information for a few hours, procedure permitting, and I return to check their understanding of the procedure, clarify their decision, and then sign the appropriate paperwork. It's a good idea to ask them to write down any questions they might think of, so that when you return for the second time, they can ask them in the discussion. I find that doing this also helps ensure the patients are not in any, any pressure to make the decision and gives them time to discuss things with their family members, as we discussed. Remember that capacity is decision-specific and can change. So if it's small and the, and the patient can weigh up the information, that's fine. But if you're discussing a major procedure or a life-changing treatment, then you may want to reass reassess the patient's capacity in that context. And remember, you cannot over-document the discussions that you have with the patients, even if they are verbatim. Thanks, Dan. That's very helpful. And it's important to remember that there's others to contact for advice. For example, your seniors for first port of call, as well as consulting trusts and national guidance, GMC guidance, and your local medical legal team. So that brings us to the end of this podcast on informed consent. We hope that you found it useful and informative. Thank you, Mr. Daniel Couch, for joining me today. My pleasure. Please check out the School of Surgery for more educational podcasts.